to Elevate Louisiana Engage podcast. Elevate Louisiana was founded earlier this year to empower women leaders throughout Louisiana by connecting and educating them on the challenges impacting our state with data-driven, nonpartisan solutions to make a better future for Louisiana. Hello, I'm your host, Julie Stokes. Today, we are recording the second in a four-part series on the state of education in Louisiana. These four videocasts are a prologue to an interactive webinar on September 25th between members of Elevate Louisiana and our four speakers. Elevate September 25th webinar will be a forum where our members will discuss Louisiana's education policies with the policymakers themselves so that our civic leaders can get more engaged in building a better future for our state. Our guest today is Jeffrey Nagel, President and CEO of the Erickson Institute, a leading force in improving the lives of young children and their families through research, knowledge, service and advocacy, and the nation's premier graduate school in child development. He joined Erickson in January of 2014 after serving as the founding director of the Tulane University Institute of Infant and Early Childhood Mental Health and an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Tulane University School of Medicine. At Erickson, Dr. Nagel has championed their advocacy efforts and relationships at the community level and created a new Early Childhood Leadership Academy to provide advocates and lawmakers with an informed understanding of how policy shapes programs and practices in early childhood. He also, as a sidebar, um, is a speaker that I saw at the governor's mansion, um, I guess in 2019, who really changed the way I looked at early childhood education um, and just was such a big influence in my view on the subject. So I wanted to make sure that our listeners got to um, hear from him. So welcome, Dr. Nagel. Oh, thank you very much. It's so great to be with you. It's good to have you here. Um, we'll jump right in. Um, you know, there's just a growing awareness of the importance of early childhood education. You know, and of course, Louisiana has a long commitment to pre-K going back 20 or 30 years. But I've heard you talk about not just early learning, but early experience. Can you tell us what you mean by early experience and how that's different than early childhood education? Well, certainly that's a, a great place to start because what I like to say is that early experience is truly the smoking gun for both education success and long-term health. Because the things that happen early in life leave biological memories in your body. So the best way to think about it, I think, is to really remember that old saying, something really gets under your skin, right? It bothers you so much it gets under your skin. Well, those are things you're aware of, but what happens to us in early childhood, we may not have the cognitive memories, but we certainly have the biological memories and we'll, probably talk about that as we get through this conversation. But where we always like to start, um, because it's caught so much attention in the last 20 years, is around the brain. Uh, we, we've heard a lot about the brain and how much of the brain develops in the first years of life. And, and that really served to get a lot of people's attention about how critically important the early childhood period is. But not just thinking about the size of the brain, but really what's happening with the brain is also a, a good way to look at it. 
there's really seven major stages of brain development. And all seven of those begin during the prenatal period. And the first four of the seven are completely done by the child's born, by the time the child is born. So when we talk about the importance of the early childhood period, once they're born, you're really talking about those last three stages. And the one that you know, we focus on a lot is the connections between the brain cells, the neurons. And so you hear that word synapsis, which is really the connections. And through experience, you, your brain more or less decides which synapsis it keeps and which synapsis it gets rid of. Because during the early childhood period, you have this exuberance of connections forming in the brain cells as much as 40,000 per second between three and 15 months. So you have all these brain cells, more than you'll actually ever have in your life, which is great, but the danger there is you don't wanna have too many brain cells, too many connections of those brain cells. So much like a beautiful garden, it's not really about the biggest, bushiest garden, you have to prune that garden. And the way the brain prunes all these connections is based on experience. So what you use, you keep and what you don't use, you lose. And that's a good thing, that's a healthy thing. And so this really helps us understand that the brain really is almost uh, plastic, right? We talk about the brain having great plasticity or neuroplasticity because the brain will change its structure and function in response to experience. So good experiences, positive experiences, nurturing, stimulating experiences, we all know those are really good for a young child. But the flip side is also true because negative, frightening, um, scary, uh, stressful experiences are, are, can really harm the developing brain. And that's what we see too much going on in our society. And for children, it sets them up on a negative trajectory in terms of their school success and their long-term health. And I think the best way to think about this is around language. Because when a baby is born, they potentially could speak any language ever known to mankind. But the language or languages they will speak are the ones they experience. So right there, you can kind of really see how the brain is going to adapt based on the experiences. And language is just a great example of that. Wow. So, you know, having put this into a larger context and talked about the early impacts you know, those childhood experiences on your long-term health outcomes. Can you explain a little more about how that actually happens? Um, how does that happen to us as young children impact positively or negatively on our long-term health? Yeah, it's, it's really more or less a, a new concept, right? Because we think back to our young childhood days and we don't even remember, right? You really don't remember what happens to you before you're, you know, four or five years old. And so, we in our society used to kind of think it was a free pass, like a blank slate, because you just won't remember, so it won't really affect you. But as I said at the beginning, it really does get under your skin. And, and one of the ways to think about this is around toxic uh, threats to our children. So we know that lead and mercury are really bad for our kids. And so we have gotten rid of those things. We know they're toxic. Uh, well, we've done our best to get rid of them. We certainly have seen various crises in the country where there is lead, our children being exposed to lead. But there's another concept we need to think about here that is much more insidious, and that is around stress. Now, we don't often think of our children being stressed. We think of it as kind of a blissful time where someone is attending to every one of your needs, and so what do you need to be stressed about as an infant? 
But the reality is, of course, uh, our youngest children uh, from the time of birth are, are stressed. They come out of the womb stressed, right? It's a really stressful experience being birthed. You're now in, a, in the world in a completely new environment and the baby comes out screaming and crying. And you know, we don't interpret that as stress, but really they're, they're having a stress response. And hopefully we, we nurture them and we cuddle them and we coddle them and we wrap them tightly in our, in our blankets and we help them calm down and we help to soothe them. But there's this notion of toxic stress and kind of unremitting, unrelenting stress that too many of our children really have to deal with. So stress is a given. It's gonna be part of every person, every child, every baby's life. And think of it as a, a baby is stressed. They're, they're hungry, they're tired, uh, they have a dirty diaper and they cry out and they're screaming and they're crying and they're inconsolable and hopefully a parent comes to them, a caretaker comes to them and helps soothe them, figures out what the child needs, whether it's something to eat or whether it's help getting to sleep or changes the diaper or all of the above. And then the baby goes back into a relaxed state. And that's more or less tolerable stress. And you learn that if I'm upset, there's gonna be people that are gonna come help me or this, these one or two caretakers that are gonna come help me, my parents, hopefully. But for too many of our children, that kind of alarm, that trigger, that's that, that uh, you know, frightening thing, and again, you're not cognitively thinking of that, but you're upset, and uh, maybe you're hungry and nobody really comes to attend to you, or maybe uh, you have a dirty diaper, or maybe you haven't seen uh, your, your you know, dependable adult in, in a long time, and it's scary. And so it's one thing after another, and your, your stress system is activated and reactivated and reactivated, and that's what we think of as toxic stress. And so, you know, too many of our children are growing up in a toxically stressed environment. So whether that's they're growing up in poverty, whether there's some sort of violence or abuse in the home, or perhaps just in their community, uh, if there's neglect, if there's uh, mental health issues in the home, if there's substance abuse issues, it can be a number of things. And unfortunately, a lot of times these things travel in a pack. And so you may have a whole bunch of those negative things in, in your world. And that really creates a more toxically stressed environment, an unremitting, unrelenting stress that is very difficult for a child to deal with, even if they're not gonna remember it, it's going to set their system up in a way that is gonna have long-term implications for them. And I think we have to really try to relate to this. Uh, as adults, we know that stress uh, triggers certain involuntary responses in our bodies, in our systems, we may get uh, our heart rate may start to increase, our blood pressure rises, our respirations may increase, our breathing, um, our palms may get sweaty, we may have butterflies in our stomach, all these involuntary responses to stress. Well, just because we're adults and we can be aware of those things that are happening, uh, the child, the baby, an infant won't be aware, but those physiological responses are occurring for the child. We have to understand that when, when we're stressed out, right, there's a trade-off of resources internally. So uh, when you're very stressed, as you're dealing with the stress, you're really diverting resources from your immune system. This is why uh, if you have a chronic illness, your physician is gonna tell you you've gotta reduce the stress in your life. Uh, or you see on college campuses and other places uh, that there's a lot of illness on campus when uh, finals come about and stress really increases. Um, same for your, your ability to remember things. You know, the more stressed you are about studying for an exam or remembering uh, certain things, maybe your shopping list, the more stressed you are about that, the harder it is for you to actually remember those things. It's harder for you to pay attention 
it creates more anxious behavior. You know, all these things are a byproduct of stress. And so when our children have that, again, before, you know, they're cognitively aware of that, but whether they're in a learning environment or they're even younger, it, it's going to have impacts for them. And certainly, as we, your question was about uh, health, um, the impacts uh, on the immune system we have learned have long-term consequences for young children as they age if they've grown up in a very stressful environment. And we know that from a seminal study that came out um, in 1998, and there have been many studies uh, that have followed up on this, and, and that study was known as the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. And that study looked at over 17,000 people, middle and upper income people in San Diego and the Kaiser Health Plan, and it asked these uh, people that were between the ages of 40 and 60 if they had had any of uh, 10 adverse experiences when they were growing up. And this was everything from physical abuse and emotional abuse all the way to their mother being treated violently or mental health, men, mental illness in the home. And so there were 10 of those. And as people checked off more of those boxes that they did have those experiences in their childhood, we see they had an increased risk of all of the major leading causes of morbidity and mortality in this country. Mm. So as you check more boxes, it was more likely as you got older that you had heart disease, lung disease, stroke, diabetes, cancer, liver disease, uh, injuries, suicides, um, school failure, criminality, all of these things in a like direct correlation, a dose response relationship with the number of adverse experiences you had as a kid. So, so profound was this uh, connection, this correlation, was that if you, if you had checked four or more boxes compared to someone who didn't have any, you were twice as likely to have cancer, seven times as likely to be an alcoholic, and if you had checked more than six of those 10 items, you were 30 times more likely to have attempted suicide, and you had a 360% higher risk of heart disease, even if you did not drink, smoke, or were overweight, which are the leading risk factors for heart disease. So profound is this connection that people who had more than six of those adverse events literally lost 20 years of their life over the span of that study. So the life expectancy was reduced from 80 years down to 60 years. So a really profound impact. But the real message here is that many chronic diseases of adults are determined decades earlier in childhood, not by disease, but by the life experiences of that child during those early years of life. Wow, and really how the brain ends up getting wired because of those experiences. That's exactly right, exactly right. Wow, so let's turn now to school readiness. Uh, what does that really mean? And what are the important skills that children need to know in order to be ready to succeed in school? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so many people focus on or think of uh, real literacy school skills uh, when they think about school readiness. You know, does the child, uh, when they get to kindergarten, do they already know the alphabet? Do they know how to write their name? Do they know how to read? Um, these are the kind of things we think about as school ready. Maybe we think of um, numeracy as well. Um, do they know how to count to 10, 20, 50? Uh, do they know how to add? You know, parents feel a lot of pressure to have their kids ready for school uh, by having those, those skills. You know, do they know the days of the week, the months of the years? Can they write the colors? All of these things, which are 
really a bit advanced uh, for that age, yet we feel like that is the kind of definition of readiness. But the reality is, you know, there's a whole set of skills we want our children to, to have when they enter school. And certainly there are literacy skills and numeracy skills, but there's also social emotional skills and physical skills. And I think we all understand that, you know, it's a whole child, it's not just uh, literacy. But if I had to pick one skill that was gonna really uh, predict for you how a child was gonna do academically throughout their schooling years, the, the first skill I would look to would be more social emotional skills, um, specifically executive function and self-regulation. Now self-regulation may be a little easier for us to understand. It's you know, how you can kind of control yourself. So you know, your, your, the ability to calm down after having a tantrum or during or preventing the tantrum because you can regulate yourself uh, as a young child. Executive function skills are a little bit um, fuzzier for most of us to think about. Uh, they, they do start in early childhood. They really come on uh, later in the early childhood period, and they continue to develop uh, well through the adolescent and teenage years, really into your 20s. But it's important that I think uh, the listeners understand a little bit about this because I think executive function and self-regulation, if a child comes into kindergarten with those skills, I think the teacher is going to have no problem teaching them all those other things we think of as what happens in school, all the things that, you know, how to read, how to learn the alphabet, how to write your name, all of those things. If we teach the children those skills before they're really ready, it just becomes an exercise in memorization and it's not really learning. So let, let me try and uh, be more clear about what executive function really is. There's a lot of jargon around it. Um, the, the real definitions uh, use words like it's your working memory and inhibitory control and your attention shifting and cognitive flexibility. But I think that's, those are just psychology terms and I think what that really translates to are they are the skills that are associated with planning, reasoning, and problem solving. Now we don't usually think about a four-year-old or a five-year-old having uh, the ability to plan, to reason, or problem solve, but they are doing that at that age. And I would maintain that those are the skills that we really want our children, when they're done with school, we assume they're gonna learn the basic facts, but the child who's really thriving is, or you know, the, the student who's graduating high school is thriving if they can plan, reason, and problem solve. And you think about if you have a teenager at home, you get really frustrated with them as a parent when they really fail to plan, reason, or problem solve. They, they, they don't look as well into the future to understand they have to do steps A, B, and C in order to achieve their goals or to uh, get certain things accomplished. And, and that comes with age, and that's just part of maturing. But really, even by four years old and five years old, you're using those skills. So let me give you a few examples. We teach our children the alphabet, and we sing our little songs, and we have the, the letters of the alphabet, and you know A through Z, and we tell them all of these sounds, uh, all of these letters have a distinct sound. But really there's a lot of exceptions to that, right? So you have a letter like C, which sounds like an S, except when it sounds like a K. And we teach our children numbers and it's, you know, zero through 10. And zero means something very different when it's alone versus when it's following another number. And we have words like tail. Um, do you want me to read you a fairy tale? Or don't pull the dog or cat's tail. You and I know those are different words, but to the four-year-old child or five-year-old child, that's the exact same word. 
So in all of those examples, they're having to take this very conflicting information and solve the riddle there and understand that things can have multiple meanings and they can have cognitive flexibility around that and they can understand that the same word can have different meanings. And so this ability to reason, this ability to have cognitive flexibility, these are really the key skills. And they don't get enough attention because we're all so comfortable thinking that it's all about literacy and numeracy and those types of things. But we all have to become more versed in understanding of what skills really matter. And, and, the, and the reason why I keep saying that is because there's lots of great research out there, longitudinal research that's looked at you know, children going 20 and 30 years later to see what were the skills that children who are succeeding as young adults have, what were those skills that they had when they were young kids? And the bottom line is that the executive function abilities predict academic and social readiness for school over and above IQ and over and above prior academic knowledge, meaning your time in preschool, if you will. The reason why preschool can be so advantageous is not because it's already taught you to read, it's because it's taught you how to self-regulate, how to plan and reason on an age-appropriate level, how to have some of these skills. So it's not just the virtue of going to an academic setting, it's being in a setting where you've had to learn and use these skills as you prepare for school. And so we see these outcomes when, when you look at, when research has looked at children across their childhood from ages three to 11, the same children ages three to 11, and then looking at them again at age 32. And there's this direct uh, dose response relationship. Again, how much, uh, what were their skills levels uh, at age three through 11 in terms of self-regulation and their outcomes and, and their health Substance use, uh, substance use, employment, incarceration, single parenting, and all of these things uh, improve or decrease um, as you had higher self-regulation skills as a young child. And there's studies that um, took place across the country in you know, 800, children, 800 children in four different locations in the country and looked at those kids from kindergarten all the way through early adulthood. And it turned out that the skills that were most predictive of their success was their ability in kindergarten to listen to others, to share without being prompted, to resolve problems with their peers on their own, and to be helpful. When they had those skills, then they had less special education, less repeated grades, they graduated from high school on time, they completed a college degree, they obtained stable employment, they had less involvement in the justice system, and they had less involvement with public assistance from housing to healthcare and other kind of uh, publicly assisted behavioral issues. So we have lots of really great research about how important those skills are. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to understand that that's what uh, early childhood is about in terms of gaining those skills. And if children enter school with those skills, we're making the teacher's lives much easier and then they're set up for success. So it's really about building how the brain solves problems and how the brain processes. And, you know, as I sit here as a parent, I can't help but think everybody who touches children, you know, in, as a parent, as a teacher, as a childcare provider needs to know those things and how important they are. So, okay, so let's talk about achievement gaps. 
Sure. I'm a supporter of early childhood education because I feel it can help address the achievement gap. Um, however, early childhood education is about the period before children even start school. Once children go off to school, we're then relying on our schools. So is the problem readiness or is the problem in our schools and therefore we need to double down on school reform efforts? Yeah, this is really a critical question because I feel like um, all of the focus with the achievement gap problems in this country gets focused on the school. And we get really upset with the school system for what we you know, think of as creating these achievement gaps. But the reality is the gaps are there not because the schools succeed or fail. They're there because of what the children experience or don't experience before they ever start school. The gaps are there when children enter kindergarten. And what the schools then do, generally speaking, not, you know, I can't speak for every specific school, but the re what the research tells us is on average, schools do a very good job of educating kids equally, low income, high income, kids uh, who are already, you know, killing it at the beginning of uh, school entry, they're, they're scoring, you know, a grade level or two ahead versus kids who are maybe a little behind, they're gonna educate those kids basically at the same rate. So if you looked at uh, two, you know, those lines, the kind of growth lines for those kids, if you remember learning about the slope of the line in your algebra class and thinking, why would I ever need to know about the slope of a line? Um, you, needed, you needed it so you could understand this conversation right here. The slopes of the line are basically the same, they're parallel. So the schools aren't creating the gap, the gap is there the schools are educating the kids, but you know what? The schools aren't able to close the gap. So this I think is an important point because we have to think back to what were the schools designed to do? Our school system was designed 170 years ago. So think, think about how long that is. So Horace Mann is really known as the father of American public education. And he was the, uh, the state of Massachusetts uh, state superintendent of education. He was the first one of those in the country. And he basically brought to the United States from looking at the Prussian system, what is today our modern system of education. And it, these were the components of it. Universal, non-sectarian, free for both boys and girls for ages five to 14. High school was added after the Civil War. It was tax funded, it was compulsory, it used trained teachers, which was a new concept, and they had an extended school year. So the frightening thing about all of that is, oh my gosh, our school system has barely evolved in the last 170 years. So we all may have the romantic image of a one-room schoolhouse, and of course now we have our big beautiful schools, and our classrooms don't have a, you know, a wood stove in it heating the room, um, and we have whiteboards in addition to blackboards and we have built in you know, projectors and all of that stuff. But the basic framework and the concept is still the same. And what's, what's stood in the place of innovation has really been minor important tweaks, but that hasn't really changed the system. So in 1946, we had the National School Lunch Act to provide uh, government sponsored food uh, for, for kids in school. Then in the 50s, we desegregated schools. In the 60s, we started providing low-income communities more federal funding for schools. In the 70s, we started serving children with disabilities. 
In the 90s, we revised the way we serve children with disabilities. In 2002, we started testing the heck out of our kids. And in 2015, we revised the way we test the heck out of our kids. But nowhere in what I just said have we changed the fundamental approach or the ways that we teach. It's still very much the same uh, approach. And yet, when you look at anything else going on in our country, in our world, in our lives, everything is changing so rapidly. Um, nothing is the way it was you know, 20 years ago, let alone 170. But the education system, despite all the reforms that have been going on for 40 plus years, is basically the same system. So even though there are gaps today, schools are not the cause and they are not increasing the gap, but they can't seem to close the gap either. And the way we know this is that Stanford University has done an amazing analysis of uh, every uh, basically, you know, elementary, middle school, third through eighth grade, every third through eighth grader in the country over the last, I don't know, maybe it's like 10 years now. But basically looking at over two to 300 million test records, they have shown that schools on average, now again, that means their schools doing better and their schools doing less well, that schools on average are doing what they were designed to do, which is educate kids one year's worth of education at a time. But because kids are behind when they start kindergarten, what we're really asking the schools to do, not explicitly, but implicitly, this is what we're asking them to do, is to take those kids who are behind and catch them up. Because we as a society fail to get our kids ready for school, we are now saying to the school, you correct that problem, you catch up those kids. And when you don't, we're pointing the finger at you. But the reality is that half of the schools in the country are educating kids basically one year at a time or a little bit better, but not much better. To do better than educating kids one year at a time in a school year is incredibly difficult. So what I mean by that is if you educated kids five and a half years worth of education, in the five-year period from third grade through eighth grade, you would be a top 20% school district in the country. So if you just eked out half an extra year, that means 1.1 year for each year of the five years. That would make you a top 20% school district. And if you were able to get one full year extra, meaning six years in five years, third grade through eighth grade, 1.2 years per year, that little bit of difference, that would put you in the top 3% in the entire country, better than 97% of all other schools. So you can see it's next to impossible to think our schools are gonna be able to fix this problem when it takes you five years. If you're the best school districts in the country, it's gonna take you five years to make up one year. So we really have to do better at making sure the gap never emerges because once it emerges, it is a monumental task to catch kids up, basically impossible. Let me give you another example. Here in Illinois, where I am now, on the state proficiency tests, thir only 36% of the kids are where they need to be at eighth grade, 36%. But if we got an extra half year in the five years, what, what only 20% of the districts could do but we do that in the entire state of Illinois, we still would only get our kids, only 58% of our kids up to proficiency. If we did what only 3% of the districts are doing in the country as an entire state, 
we would only have 77% of our kids at proficiency. We would have to get eight years and five years, what, something that no district in the country is doing, if we wanted to get 90% of the kids up to proficiency at eighth grade. Mm. So you can see it's almost impossible if we put this on the schools. We have to prevent the gap from ever emerging if we want to rid ourselves of this achievement gap. The, the win or lose of the education system actually happens before the children ever enter school. And that is something we really need to embrace and accept if we really want to succeed in addressing the achievement gaps in this country. It's a lot, about a lot more than, as I've heard people say, cracking crayons and changing diapers. I mean, this is about development of the whole person. Um, you know, so what I hear you saying there is, you know, that we need to continue to hold our schools accountable, but really that the, the real work to build a true, high-quality, well-funded, early childhood education, it, that's the hope, is that we need to build early childhood education. Well, we need to build an early childhood system because is you know, where we started with early childhood experience, education is a piece of an early childhood uh, experience, but it is not the totality of the experience. And so one of our traps in this country is that we use those terms synonymously, early childhood learning, early childhood education, early childhood development. But I am very intentional about saying early childhood experience because that's larger than just early childhood education. And really in those first few years before we're educating the child in the, you know, when we use that word education, we think school. And when we think school, we keep trying to talk about taking a K-12 system and move it down. We wanna add pre-K, and then we wanna add 3K, and then we wanna give our departments of education across the country responsibility for the young kids. But what they do is educate kids of a different age and a different developmental level. We need to approach our young children in a much more holistic way understanding that it's more than just education. We need to support families. We need to support parents. We need to support uh, parenting skills and parent education. We need to support families. That's why we need things like paid family leave so parents can be home with their children for more than six to 12 weeks and, and be able to financially afford that. We don't support that in this country. We're actually one of the only developed countries in the world that doesn't have a really meaningful paid family leave system. And we pay for that in our school readiness. And then we pay for it in our educational gaps. And then we pay for it in people's long-term educational and health outcomes. So it's really about a whole different approach. The K-12 system will be greatly enhanced if we delivered to the doors of the schools children who are ready for school. And we don't do that right now. And so the schools have to spend an inordinate amount of time and resource trying to catch kids up. And that was never what they were created to do. And we haven't changed that system in any meaningful way to position them for that success. I, I can't help but want to ask here, when we talk about other countries and some of the examples of paid family leave that really support this childhood experience and sending kids to school that are ready to learn and ready to move one year at a time, um, can, do you have a, an example of a country like that that can kind of serve as a role model? 
Well, there's, there's many countries. I mean, let me uh, answer that in, a, in an even more macro way. Um, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development is a Europe-based uh, think tank that um, looks at tons of different metrics of how uh, the developing world is doing. So it's not just the European countries and you know, the European Union, but also uh, the United States. And, and so tons of economic indicators and educational indicators. And so we know from their uh, research over many years how much uh, countries spend to support young children and families. And on average, in, in the European Union, and, and the average of all of the, the countries, the about 33 countries that they track, um, countries spend just under 1% of their GDP uh, on young children. So they spend about 0.7% of 1%, 0.7. In the United States, we are next to last uh, on that indicator. So of the 33 countries, we're 32nd, maybe 31st, but I think we're 32nd. We spend 03 to 0.4%. So we're, we're not putting our money where our mouths are. So yeah, I could, we could point to you know, countries like Iceland and whatever that are, you know, spend about 1.1%. But you know, in, in this country that we don't wanna be like Iceland. But I do think it is a fair representation and that's nothing against Iceland. I just think that we we just don't like to compare ourselves to individual countries. But I think when you compare ourselves to other developed countries, developed economies, uh, we like to think we're we're the leaders of all of that, that we're the best, that we set the standard. And the reality is that we're really not stepping up to the plate to support uh, young children and families. And uh, across many metrics, uh, that that can be seen. Um, so whether it's total funding or total spending on the federal level, all the way to um, specific programs like paid family leave, where we're really just the only country that has no uh, comprehensive federal program to support paid family leave. Hmm. Well, you know, as we get close to the end of our time today, I just want to return to some of the things that you said at the beginning, namely that this is really about early childhood experience. And can you talk a little bit more about what that really means? Sure. So just to reiterate, um, and because, you know, if, if your listeners hear nothing else, I, I hope they just hear that uh, early childhood experience is much bigger than early childhood education or early learning. So we have to understand that children need more than just to be learning. Um, there's lots of ways that prepare them for learning the way we think of it, preparing them for school. So we think of this larger umbrella of early childhood experience. And the way children experience the world, the active ingredients of early experience are relationships, right? So hopefully with the parents, but if not the parents, whether it's the grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever it is, we hope that every single child from day one has at least one adult in their life who is crazy, irrationally in love with them and is gonna be there for them through thick and thin, you know, that life will inevitably bring. So in real estate, we think of location, location, location. For young children, it's all about relationships, relationships, relationships. That is the key. Because it's through the experiences that child has with that attachment figure, where the baby will develop expectations about the dependability of adults when they're stressed. Does the adult provide them comfort and support and nurturance and protection? And if a child gets that, and what they're learning, what they're internalizing, again, not cognitively, but what they're learning about the world is they're learning safety, security, hope, and trust. 
And if we could give every child in this country safety, security, hope, and trust, I think we're really gonna be in a much better place and really setting our kids up to succeed. So the impact of these secure relationships, it's not just emotional or psychological, it's literally biochemical in terms of building their resilience to deal with stress, the stress that, stress that is inevitable in their lives and that for too many kids is more toxic stress. But you can overcome that. And we know, we, we love to hear and celebrate in this country these stories of children who overcome unbelievable odds. But the reality is behind every one of those stories is some sort of supportive relationship. That if you ask that person, how did you overcome that? They're going to say, my mother, my father, my aunt, my uncle, my school teacher, somebody was there for them that got them through that period or that time or their childhood. But you can't just do it alone. And, you know, we, we, we try that and we see, you know, we're all frustrated by the results, but we have to understand it's a bigger systemic failure and it's not just about the schools. And so we have to peel it all the way back to the beginning and really look at what children need and what we really want children to emerge from childhood with. And again, if it's safety, security, hope, and trust, I think we're gonna have a much better country. Well, absolutely. Uh, well, it's very interesting. So what I gather is that you're saying that we need to build a system from prenatal to five up rather than from K to 12 down. So what does that really include? You know, what are the types of pieces or the programs you know, that would be part of this prenatal to five system. Yes, you know, there's a lot of advocacy out there for pieces of the system. And in reality, we need the, the totality, the whole package. So um, you may hear from time to time about the importance of home visiting programs. You may hear about uh, the importance of universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds. Uh, you may hear about the importance of not just childcare, but quality childcare. So, you know, there's a debate about quality versus quantity. You may hear about, oh, we need to expand tax credits and financial subsidies for families to afford this. Uh, you may hear about, oh, we need more early head start. We need more pay parity for the teachers who work in childcare so that there's parity between you know, their pay and, and those who work in schools. You may hear about uh, the need for more infant mental health services, or we need paid parental leave. And the answer is yes, all of the above because any one of these programs alone is not going to really shift the curve. And that's what we often do is we come up with the new shiny program of the day, we put some money into it, and then we're frustrated when the results aren't there. But the problem is much bigger than what any one of these programs are gonna do. And so we really have to come at this with a full arsenal of effort and, and interweave these resources and not make it hard for people to access and we make it so that they can get these things, just like you can send your kid to public school. Uh, it should just be the way it is. And if we do that, we'll have uh, parents and families and children that are much more supported. You know, the irony here is that back in 1971, Congress passed in, in a bipartisan way, universal childcare, which would certainly be one big piece of the puzzle. But that was in 1971, that was 49 years ago. And yet President Nixon vetoed that. And that was front page, you know, left column above the fold news in the New York Times uh, the next day that this was, uh, it was President Vito's childcare plan is irresponsible. 
And here it is 49 years later, and we're just nibbling at the edge of trying to get that which Congress passed almost 50 years ago. And when I say nibbling at the edge, because we're having a debate in this country over the last 15 years, should we do pre-K? And some states have really gone all in, and Louisiana's certainly been at the forefront of that. Um, but that would just be for four-year-olds. And we're just moving the K-12 system down one year. And now there's more momentum around three-year-olds, and that's incrementally starting. But the reality is children are young kids, zero to three, for just 1,100 days. And it's 19 years later. So how many generations are we going to neglect and say, you got to deal with this on your own. I hope you have the resources to get what you need. And everyone else, you're going to have to fend for yourself. And we've seen the failure of that system or the failure of the lack of the system. And so really, you know, the question I always like to ask at the end of a conversation I have about this to people today is, if you were building an education system today, would you start at age five? Because that's what we do. We really don't start doing anything for children and families in totality until they're five. And the reason we do it when they start at five was because of decisions we made in 1850 and 1845. But we would never build a system today that started at age five because we know so much more now than what we knew in 1850 and we haven't adapted. We haven't built a system to support children and families from not just birth, really prenatally. And until we do that, we're gonna to continue to be frustrated in lots of different ways because where we spend the most time, energy, and money in government and, and, and resources is in education and healthcare. And we're frustrated in both of those areas. But the smoking gun, the foundation of both of those is rooted in early childhood. And that's where we have to start to focus our attention and really put our resources. Wow. It's just so much of a more holistic sort of conversation than just early childhood education. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me while I served in the legislature was just that this got to be a very important thing for so many people in our community. But no matter what kind of surplus we had, we just didn't ever seem to be able to take the money and put it aside. So part of what I hope to achieve through this um, and other of our webinars and video casts is to, to get the legislature to move on it. Um, that's about all the time that we have for today, um, but I'd like to thank our guest, Jeffrey Nagel. Um, and now that I know that you're from Tulane, um, it's so exciting that you're, you're, you're from home. Uh, we look forward to spending more time with you on September 25th. That sounds great. And I look forward to it as well. Great. Well, thank you. Um, if you're interested in joining Elevate Louisiana and want to be part of the interactive webinar on September 25th, please contact us through social media on Facebook at Elevate Law. That's at E-L-L-E-V-A-T-E-L-A or by visiting our website at E-L-L-E-V-A-T-E-L-A.org. And don't forget to like Elevate Louisiana on all the social media platforms. I'm your host, Julie Stokes, and we'll see you next time.